Well, I want to give you a preview. Uh, coming up in the fall, we're going to have a series called The Rescue. And we're going to delve into, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, we're going to delve into a, a book of the Bible that's had profound effect on the Christian church. You know, Martin Luther, when he began to study this book, it led him to understand the gospel for the first time, even though he had been a minister. This is the book that was used to light the great awakening in this, church, in this country. It's the book of Galatians. It's the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's all about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you know, the grace of God is totally counterintuitive. We always want to have it be a deal where we bring something and God brings something. And when you begin to understand the gospel, you understand the only thing you bring to Him is sin and brokenness. You add nothing. Even your ability to repent, even your ability to be guilty is a gift from Him. That's why Jack Miller, who's gone to be with the Lord, was so great. One of the things he used to say is sort of an adage, uh, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. (laughs) You are a lot worse than you think you are. And God's grace is a lot greater than you think it is. So we're going to look at that a little bit today, and this is a bit of a preview maybe. Uh, We're not even going to talk about Galatians, but it's talking about the gospel, which is all about Galatians. If you were here last week, you know we were in chapter 50 of Genesis, where we're looking at the end of the story of Joseph, and we saw how many parallels there are between Joseph and Jesus. And then today, we're going to take another look at Joseph. We're going to go back to chapter 45. It's 20 years after he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. It's been 20 years of abuse, many of those 20 years. And now he is in leadership in Egypt. His brothers have come, and uh, Pharaoh is uh, very interested in blessing these brothers because of Joseph. So let's begin. Chapter 45, beginning in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household goods and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now that's great news because there's a famine all over the world and certainly in Canaan, but there's food in Egypt. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say to them, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin... He gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. And so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan and to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, 
The spirit of their father Jacob was revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. You know how long he spent with Joseph before he died? Seventeen years. Rod Rosenblatt is a hero of mine. He's 74 years old. He teaches theology at Concordia College in Irvine, California. He's one of the best theologians alive today, and yet he's humble. He speaks all over the country. He is one of the uh, co-hosts of the radio show, The White Horse Inn. And you know how he said he became a Christian? He wrecked the car. When he was 16 years old, he was in a high school, he was a senior. And they had a fraternity there, and they had uh, hazing rites and rituals, and one of them was to get drunk. And so he got drunk with five of his friends... And they loaded into his father's 58 Chevy, a V8 with a long hood, and Rod was driving. Well, he got to an intersection. He pulled his car out so far that he got clipped. The car that clipped him only lost a headlight, but he lost the entire car. It was totaled and couldn't be driven. You know, the first thing he did, he went to a telephone booth no cell phones, and he called his dad. He said, Dad, I I just wrecked the car, and my buddies and I were stranded. And Dad, we were drunk. We are drunk. His dad, who's a medical doctor, said, I'll be right there. And he goes, and he picks them up. He takes every one of those five friends of Rod Rosenblatt home, and Rod said it was the longest trip he's ever had with his father. And when they get home, his father says to the rest of the family, get out of the living room, this is just Rod and my time. And he told Rod to sit down on the couch. And then he put his arm around his son. And he said, Rod, how are you feeling? Rod said, I was 16, I thought I was a man, but I started to cry like a baby. I said, Dad, I'm guilty. I'm ashamed. My dad let a couple of minutes go by, and then he said to me, how about if you and I go out tomorrow and buy you a new car? Rod said, that's when I first became a Christian. Now, this is a theologian talking. You say, how is that possible? Get drunk? Wreck a car? Have your dad put his arm around you and say, let's go tomorrow and get a new one? He said, the way I became a Christian was in that moment, grace became real to me. You can't be a Christian unless grace has become real to you. Now, we forget the wonder of it all the time. And that's why Luther said you must preach the gospel of grace to yourself every day. Somebody said grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. 
Grace is being loved when you are completely unlovable. Grace is love that has nothing to do with you, the loved. It has everything to do with the lover. Grace is one-way love. Last Sunday, I was meeting with a friend of mine who's a psychologist. It was lunch. It wasn't counseling, although I need it. (laughs) And he told me a story there, and I went back and I recorded what he told me, and I got it wrong. And so, by his grace, at 11.33 p.m. on Thursday... He wrote the story, and I want to tell it to you. A lady was living with her boyfriend. They had a three-year-old son. In the course of a heated argument, she took a kitchen knife and slammed it into the door. He called the police. They came and took her away and committed her involuntarily to a psychiatric unit in the hospital where she stayed for days. When she was released, she was distraught because she learned that her boyfriend had kicked her out and filed a PFA, Protection from Abuse Order, against her. She has no family in the area. She had nowhere to go, so she went to a woman's shelter. And there she stayed for eight weeks in that shelter. She took public transportation to get to work. She worked at a fast food place. And in eight weeks, she was able to save enough money to pay for a down payment on an apartment, and she was excited. But her excitement quickly waned when she realized that that apartment would be empty. She had no possessions except for one bag of clothes. So at this point in our counseling session, she came to me because she was court-ordered to. I said to her, did you ever hear about the blessing board? And she said, yeah, at the shelter, there's some churches that volunteer, and they tell us that the blessing board is a place where you can get furniture, but I can't go there because I'm not religious. I quickly disabused her of the notion that you had to be religious to go to the blessing board. I said, the men, women, and children that work there don't have any religious litmus. The following Saturday, she went to the blessing board, and listen to this. I can declare that without a semblance of hyperbole, this was a profoundly transcendental, transformational experience in this young woman's life. It's important to know that she, in her early years, went to church, but she never felt a sense of connection. It was all just words to her. And so, for a long time, she hadn't gone to church. But being part of the blessing board, that experience was exponentially more powerful than anything she'd ever experienced. 
She saw the message of the gospel from her early church years put into practice. And then he says, the young woman returned to me. Beaming about her experience. She expressed in a profuse sense of gratitude and appreciation what the Lord had been doing in her heart and in her life through the hands and hearts of numerous volunteers at the Blessing Board. She was constantly smiling, eager, and they were constantly smiling and eager to serve. She implicitly stated, now I've got it. She now understood the power of Christ and what He can achieve. She understood it in a way that reading and studying had never allowed her to understand. Initially, while I thought this was a very positive outcome, I didn't expect this euphoria to last. I believe that her deep, dark mental state was what caused all that love and affirmation she received at the blessing board to really stoke her emotions. I thought it was a ray of sunshine into her bleak months of grief. I perceive the situation to be much similar to a child who watches a video about how beef is processed and then becomes a vegetarian for a couple of hours. In her case, I thought the change might last for a week or two. I was wrong. This change lasted. Since that day, she has continually let Christ rule in her life. And now she is a proud, blessed, practicing Christian. You know what happened to her? Grace invaded her life. She experienced the grace of Jesus. Not religion, what she had to do, but grace that understands there's nothing I can do. Rod Rosenblatt said, yeah, there's one thing we bring to Jesus every time we get to Him, and that's our sin. And we all have it. You know, years ago in Philadelphia, a man came up to R.C. Sproul and said, are you saved? Now imagine saying to one of the premier eminent theologians in the world, are you saved? You say, well, he didn't know who R.C. Sproul was. I know he didn't. That's why I asked him, I guess. But you know what Sproul said in response to that? He didn't say yes or no. You know what he said? From what? He asked the man, from what? You asked me, am I saved? From what? What are you asking me? 1976, Barbara Jordan. Do you remember her? Barbara Jordan spoke at the Democratic National Convention. First time a black woman spoke in front of a national convention of any party. She was the first... African-American congresswoman elected from the South, from Texas. 
She gave a speech that night that is considered one of the best speeches of the 20th century. And I'll never forget, in the middle of it, she said this. I hear a lot today about change. So do we. But I ask you, change from what to what? That's the question. Change from what to what? The same thing is true of God's grace. Until you begin to, begin to understand from what He has taken you to what He has taken to you by His grace, you will never appreciate the nature and depth of the change. You'll never appreciate what Jesus has done for you unless you know from what He has taken you to what He has given you. You know where you get one of the clearest pictures of it in all the Bible? Story of Joseph. Right here in chapter 45. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the command. Look at verse 17 and 18. Joseph said to, jo- or Joseph said to his brothers, sorry, Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> it's been 20 years Joseph has been sold by these brothers into slavery. It's been 20 years since they said, in effect, you're dead to us. And now, 20 years later, they're standing before him. He's revealed his identity to them. And he says, Pharaoh has a message for you. Go back to Canaan. Get everything you have. All of the people. Leave everything else behind and come to me. Now, it is interesting that earlier in the story of Joseph, the Bible says Joseph was like a father to Pharaoh. In other words, whatever Joseph said, Pharaoh would do. But here in chapter 45, it's reversed. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I want you to tell your brothers this. Say to your brothers, Load your beasts, go back to the land of Canaan, get your father, your household, come back to me, and I will give you the best of the land. Now let me ask you something. Why in the world would Pharaoh be gracious to the brothers of Joseph? Do you know who they are? They are shepherds. Egyptians were city dwellers. They hated farmers and certainly shepherds. They they were the lowest of the low. There was nothing to commend them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would have a natural antipathy to these brothers. And yet, what is it that causes the king of Egypt to say, I'll give you my best? It's Joseph. It's all because of Joseph. Without Joseph, Pharaoh would never have known these men. Without Joseph, Pharaoh would never have anything but famine. He would not have a supply. Without Joseph, Pharaoh would never have invited them to the kingdom. The only way they get out of their starvation and they come to surplus is through the merits of their brother. Do you see that in your own life? 
if it's not for your Joseph, you are facing a present and a future of starvation, desolation, a dystopian future. There's only one way that you are saved from all of that, and that's through the grace of your older brother, Jesus. Change. From what to what? From famine to abundance. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Just like that young woman who lost everything until Jesus and His grace became real to her. Second, notice the concern. Look at verse 20. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. And I love what the Hebrew says. Leave your stuff behind. I mean, think of this. Pharaoh is saying to Joseph to say to his brothers, I want you all the people to come, everybody, all your kids, all your servants, all everybody, but leave all your stuff behind. I mentioned this a few years ago, and I'll mention it again. About 15 years ago, my brother and my sister and I had the privilege of moving our parents out of their house into a retirement community. It was a serious downsizing event. My sister came down from New York and she packed up all the stuff. And, you know, like a lot of uh, people, she didn't throw anything away. So when my, brothers and I, my brother and I get there a couple of weeks later on the moving day, we've got the wonderful privilege of throwing my parents' stuff away that doesn't fit in the truck. Now, my father for over 40 years did the Royal Canadian Air Force exercises every morning. He wasn't Canadian and he never was in the Air Force. <laughs> I, I don't know why. <laughs> but about uh, 30 years ago he decided that was boring after 40 years and he got a Nordic track. And so he gave up on the Canadians and the Air Force and he went with the Scandinavians. And if you've ever seen one of those old Nordic tracks, you know, it's got pulleys and it's got, uh, you know, rope and it's got these ski-like deal. And every morning in a spare bedroom, he'd be in his uh, skivvies sweating for an hour. And so we get the truck packed and my dad comes out, hey, you guys forgot my Nordic track. And my brother said, dad, it's junk. It's not coming. What? I was on that Nordic track this morning. I've been on that every day for 15 years. What do you mean it's not coming? My brother said, Dad, the wood's pickled and warped. All the string, those ropes, they're fraying. It's garbage. Now, he wasn't getting very, very far with my father, so I intervened not knowing if this would help, but I said, Dad, listen, you are going to a place that has a gym, and you can use any of that equipment anytime you want. You won't even need your Nordic track, and the only thing you're going to have to sacrifice is you've got to wear a few more clothes. 
And when it sank in, my dad said, hey, I like that. Now that's exactly what Pharaoh is saying to these brothers. Leave all your old stuff behind. It may be stuff that's valuable to you. It may be stuff that's valuable to somebody else. But you don't need it. I am going to give you the best, more than you could ever want. I'm going to give you the best of the land. Now isn't that exactly what the Lord says to every one of us that he saves? Are you saved? From what? From everything that wears out. Everything that disappoints. Everything that atrophies. Everything that always changes and goes to entropy. I will save you from everything that doesn't last and I will give you everything that will never pass away. Have you ever thought of that? The fact that Jesus knows you so well and he's given you a future that's so clear and so well defined that it will never change. It will never be altered. He loves you as much today as he's ever loved you or as ever will love you. I love that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full, look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You know something? Once my dad got to that retirement community, he never even mentioned his Nordic track. And if you'd ask him, do you want it back? He said, no, not really. And then third, notice the clothes. Look at verse 22. And each and all of them he gave clothes, a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, his brother by the same mother, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Now somebody has said that this sentence in the Scriptures captures the grace of God as well as any. Twenty years earlier, they had sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Now they get back 15 times that amount. 20 to 300. Now let me play with the numbers for a minute. Five is the number of grace in the Bible, and three is the number that's always associated with God. So what is Joseph saying? I am giving you a full distribution of divine grace. You sold me for 20. I'm giving you 300 in return. In other words, you sowed your sin and now you are going to get a divine portion of grace in return. Think of it. 20 years ago, they stripped him of his clothes including that coat. Twenty years later, he gives them new garments from Egypt. And you know what the Hebrew says? They are festal garments. You know what festal garments? They're party clothes. They're royal. They're decked out in royal clothes to party. <laughs> They're the same clothes Joseph wears. Think of it. Twenty years earlier, they had watched him being carried off on the back of a camel as a slave. Twenty years later, these sons, these brothers, ride off in the chariots of Egypt 
representing the king. The man says to R.C., are you saved? In other words, are you going to escape hell? To which Sproul would say, don't you know it's so much better than that? Jesus has given me His clothes. God sees me as perfect in Christ. I've got a treasure that will never wear out. More than that, I have a new identity. Every shekel of my sin, He has given me a chariot of grace. Isn't that amazing? That's what Paul means when he says, as sin abounds, so does grace abound much more. For every shekel of sin, He gives you a chariot of grace. And if you're saved... You've received that from Him. And then fourth and finally, notice the carts. Look at verse 27. But when they told their father all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph sent him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Now notice it's not the words of Joseph that revives him. It's not the words that the brothers report that revives their father. After all, he... They had lied to him. Twenty years earlier, they had said, Joseph is dead. Now they say he's alive. What is there that would indicate that they're not lying again? They're telling him after twenty years of thinking his son was dead, he's really alive. Now if all Jacob had to go on were the words of his sons, he would never have been revived. He would never have come to Egypt. He would have considered it just another lie. So what is it that changes his mind? It's not just the testimony of the brothers. It's the wagons he sees. Joseph is alive and look! There's wagons full of goods here, donkeys. Now you think of that woman who came to that friend of mine who's a psychologist. What grabbed her attention? What did God use to impart His grace to her? Were they the words of Tom Mitlow? In part. But you know what did it? When she saw the love of these people loading her truck, You see, without the work of Joseph, there'd be no proof that he was alive. The same is true for Jesus. Without the cross and without the resurrection, all it is are words. I can't tell you the number of times people have said in their disbelief, oh, I'm not sure I buy that. Oh, all that religious stuff. Oh, that's what you say. So how about the cross? How about the resurrection? The cross and the resurrection prove that everything that Jesus said was true. When you begin to plumb the depths of God's grace in the cross, you see that every one of His words are true. You begin to realize the extent of His grace and you discover that it's grace that draws you in just like it drew Rod Rosenblatt in, just like it drew that woman in. Are you saved? From what to what? 
All you have to do to answer that question is take another look at your Joseph. Jesus. Think about that. Amen.